0: Turn, if you would please, to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah. No, I have not completely lost it yet. You would say to me, but pastor, the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. Yes, that is the last book of the Old Testament. But the last book of history, of the historical chronologic account that takes place in the Old Testament is the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is neither priest nor prophet. It simply gives to us the narrative of that which happens to God's people. And and this then draws to a close. When we come to the end of Nehemiah, we come to the close of the chronological account that we are given of God's people in the Old Testament, what follows is going to be 400 years or so of silence, and then God will break forth into the world with the announcement of the coming of his son, and the one who would be the forerunner of his son, even John the Baptist. The contemporary of Nehemiah would have been Malachi, so As Nehemiah is going about his work and labor in Jerusalem, Malachi, as a prophet, is also functioning. So those two books go together. Now, you might say, as you were paging through, well, wait a minute, Pastor, Esther actually is found after Nehemiah. Yes, that's true, in the placement, but not in the chronology. Esther would have taken place even before Ezra. Took place as well. In fact, uh, I believe uh, the king that we are dealing with here in the book of Nehemiah, if I am not mistaken, is the grandson of Esther. So, just or right, that's what the the historians tell us in that regard. So, it, it, it's kind of important that we understand that part of the context of where we are and not be muddled and lost because. This, it gets a little confusing in and of itself as far as how things played out and we'll seek to at least unravel some of that this evening. So we have Nehemiah and uh, we're going to be reading chapter 1 and then we're going to read through chapter 2 verse 8. So it's a rather long section. Let's hear then the breathed word of God. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hecaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chisleph in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanai, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, and here then is recorded the first of Nehemiah's prayers, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you. Excuse me, I will scatter you among the peoples, and if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, then your outcasts are in the uttermost though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. from there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Into the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Prayer number two. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governance of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father are our in heaven, we thank you for this portion of your word. We ask that you will be with Pastor Bob as he speaks on this word and teaches about prayer. This we ask in your name alone. Amen. Amen. Three things this evening, first of all, the context of Nehemiah's prayers. Secondly, the content of Nehemiah's prayers, and thirdly. The conclusions that we can draw, or at least some, that we can draw from these prayers of Nehemiah. In this short series on prayer that we'll be dealing with for the next several Lord's Day evenings, we're going to center on Nehemiah. I had thought earlier when I had, uh, was, was working on this that, that I'd get a good scattering um, and uh, throughout Scripture of prayers, and I kept being drawn back to Nehemiah. And uh, as as I was drawn back to the book of Nehemiah and the prayers of Nehemiah, I decided to use just Nehemiah's prayer life um, as a means by which we might, Lord willing, learn how to pray as the Lord has taught us to pray. So first of all, the context, that's what we learn in the the first three verses, and we'll include the fourth in on that as well. Nehemiah has received a report. He is not in Jerusalem. He is in Susa, which is the capital, or one of the capitals, we might say, of the Persian Empire at the time. So he is hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. Others previous to this have left Persia and gone back. There was a return that was led by a man by the name of Zerubbabel. He came back, and the, the part of the, his coming back was once again to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. There was another coming back. There was another letting loose. Another king had had allowed for some of the the Jews to return after those 70 years of Babylonian captivity. Now that the Persians are in charge, uh, they're ministering and they're occupying uh, Judah and Jerusalem with a a different way than the Babylonians. And so the king allows them to go back uh, under Ezra and there is a, a rebuilding there Uh, of the temple and of the altar of burnt offerings so that worship could indeed begin once again. So there have been opportunities to return. And as the first portion of this letter sort of indicates to us, it seems like people were were sort of free to to go and to come. Because what starts all of this is a report that Nehemiah receives from those who have come back to Susa from Jerusalem. So they were there, now they have returned to Susa. And Nehemiah has sought them out, and he has heard a report. The report comes to us from the man by the name of Haniah, one of my brothers. That could mean his literal family, brother, okay? It could mean that. It could mean one of his fellow tribesmen, that they were from the same tribe. If you look through the Old Testament, that's often the way that the Jews would speak of their brothers. If they were from the tribe of Judah, they were brothers. If they were from the tribe of Simeon, they were brothers, even though they might be very distant relatives. But the Jews also use that expression just in terms of being a fellow Jew. They are my brothers. So the indication here, we we really don't know which of the three it is, probably doesn't really matter at this point in, in the context. If it mattered greatly to us, the Lord would have given us a little more indication in regards to that. This is somebody, though, that we might say is of like mind with Nehemiah. He is a brother in that regard. And the news that has come is about Jerusalem. It is about what is going on in Jerusalem. Nehemiah, many, many miles away, is wondering, so what's happening to Jerusalem? Now the other thing we have to remember in all of this is Jerusalem is more than just a city. It is a city, yes, but it's more than just a city. It is a symbolic city. It's a symbolic city. Of the Old Testament church. It is a picture of God's grace. And God's love. It is referred to as the city of David. It is referred to as Zion. And we'll come back to that in a few moments. What's happening in Jerusalem? What's happening with the people of God. Who are there. In that place. Well the report comes back. The circumstances are not good. Four things we are told. Verse 3. They said to me the remnant there. In the province who have survived the exile. Is in great trouble. The situation. Is not good. The situation is not peaceful. There is hostility. The people there are in great trouble and shame. Right? You know the sense of shame that we have here? This, This is not the sense of shame in the sense of having sinned and been caught at it. This is the sense of shame that overwhelms a people when they believe That they are on the losing side. This is the sense of shame of the loss of hope. These people not only are in trouble, but their hope is gone as well. The symbolism of that is the other two things. The fact that the walls of Jerusalem Are in ruins. Walls which are supposed to stand for defense, walls that are supposed to be a protection, walls that are supposed to be a hedge, walls that are a sign of strength and power and might still lie in broken ruins. More than 70 years since Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians destroyed the place. It's still there in spite of the fact that Zerubbabel and hundreds have returned. They're still in ruins. In the fact that that Ezra and thousands have returned, they're still in ruins. But not only are the walls the gates, the gates by which men enter. The city. Remember where we were this morning? Right? Psalm 118. The glorious gates of righteousness throw open unto me and I will enter them with praise. See, they're they're a symbol, they're a picture of entering in to the kingdom of God. To God's presence. Because you see, that's where the temple is. The glorious gates of Righteousness. And what's their condition? They're burned with fire. This is the news that Nehemiah receives. News so unlike. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 48. Here's this song, this psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, see that's Jerusalem. In the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Verse 9, we have fought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple, as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that there is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. See that pra- See the picture? Those walls, those gates. Oh, it's strong, it's powerful. There's an anthem of praise in Psalm 48, isn't there? What do we have here? Nehemiah 1:3. The people are in great trouble and shame. The wall. Of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. What's Nehemiah's reaction? Look at the next verse. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying. This is, this, this knocks him off his feet. What? What? God's city? Jerusalem, Mount Zion, still in ruins, gates burned. Does that not sound like the church today? Could that not be said? I'm not thinking of Little Farms. I'm thinking about the church, the visible church. It's in great trouble. It has no voice. It has no voice in this world anymore. Nobody cares. Nobody cares what the church thinks. Nobody cares what the church stands for. Unless it's for an object of ridicule. It is in great trouble. And you know what? The vast majority of the church is in shame. They have no hope. The hope is gone. The joy is gone. The strength is gone. Why? Because the defenses are gone. We took away the one thing that God had given to us to be a defense. We took away that word. And we took away the glorious gate. I am the gate of the sheep. The church no longer proclaims Christ. It, it preaches some sort of social justice. It preaches some sort of uh, harmonious humming of the world. That we're all one. We all have to coexist. And all this other gobbledygook that we hear. For the lack of a better term. Do you not weep? Do you not look at the circumstances and go, the church of Jesus Christ? And this is what we have become? This powerless entity in the world? It isn't like Everybody always did what the church said, but at least it listened. Nobody even cares to listen anymore. Nobody even wants to have the discussion. Nobody even wants to talk. You can't have a discussion about truth any longer. Is it not sad? See, the the context that Nehemiah is going to pray out of is not much different, my friends, than the context in which you and I are living today. We have a church, a visible church, that is broken. We have a church that has lost hope. We have a church that is discouraged. We have a church that has lost Christ. We have a church that has lost the Word. How does Nehemiah respond? He mourns. He weeps. How many of us have done that? Well, we get angry. We may get mad. We may pluck signs in our yard. But how many of us do what Nehemiah did? Sat down and wept and mourned and fasted for days. Ah, Maybe two, three minutes. Yeah, that that's... Man, I was there for two, three minutes concerned about the church. Prayer is to be born out of a sense of God. A sense of God and who God is that overwhelms Mind the body. We want me to take a day off work and not get paid for a day. Maybe, maybe that's what it'll take for for the people of God to pray like is going to pray. A realization of the circumstance that we are truly in as the church, not for our sake, but for his great name's sake. The church of Jesus Christ, the church that bears the name of our Lord and Savior. You can't, but even Hear a whisper. And when those voices come up, too many of the church become like piranha. We don't have to have the world devour us. We do it ourselves. Somebody stands up and speaks to the culture of which we're a part and we watch. The world attack, and then we go, well, that didn't go so well. I guess we'll join in the attack as well. And so we become this feeding frenzy and tear into one another. He mourned. He wept. He fasted for days. And he prayed. What is the content of Nehemiah's prayer? Well, first of all, one of the things that we can note about this prayer, which, by the way, is rather brief, I don't know why we got into this thing that somehow or another in our minds a prayer is not good unless we pray for, you know, like hours on end, okay? This is a pretty brief prayer. And, and what's interesting is just about every commentary I looked in said, the great prayer of Nehemiah, the great prayer of Nehemiah, the great prayer of Nehemiah. And I'm going, a eh, couple minutes. Hmm, maybe there's something to be learned there. Maybe there's something that we have to understand. See, because one, one of the things that I often hear from folks is, well, you know, Prayer wealthy. I'm not real good at prayer. You know, I, I I can't pray that long. Neither does Nehemiah. Neither does Nehemiah. But one of the things that stands out even in the brevity of this prayer is the attributes of God. He is the Lord God, the covenant God. He is great. He is awesome. His steadfast love from verse 5. Verse 10, his great power, his strong hand. How great thou art. The attributes of God. Nehemiah begins with thinking of who God is. Secondly, he confesses Corporate sin, we, we, Israel, your servants, we, my father's house, I, we have sinned. We have acted corruptly against you. Verse 7, we have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. What introspection. Why are we in the mess we're in? Why are we in the situation we're in? We have sinned. We have not kept your commands, God. This is exactly, exactly what you told us. Say, where did he say that? Go back with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30. Deuteronomy, chapter 30. Hundreds of years before Deuteronomy 30, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, Susa and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Where did we read? just read this? It's almost word for word of that which Nehemiah prayed. See, sometimes prayer isn't having to come up with Something new. Sometimes prayer is just saying what God has already said. And that's what Nehemiah is doing. He's saying, we're in a mess. And the mess we're in is because we have sinned. And this is the fulfillment of your word. This is exactly what you said. Almost one third of this prayer is simply the repetition of Deuteronomy chapter 30. Don't know how to pray? He teaches you how to pray. Here it is. Here it is. Here's his word. Gives us good thought for perhaps our circumstances today. Perhaps we need to stop confessing the sins of others and confess the corporate sins of the church. You see, Nehemiah includes himself and his father's house, his tribe. We've sinned. It's not just those out there. It's not just those other churches and we're just so much better than them. No, we have sinned, almighty God. Why is the church in the position it is in? We have sinned. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Right, right. That's really what the church of Jesus Christ is all about today. Not heeding riches. Not being concerned about the praise of men. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, right? Oh yeah, we're really. We're really debtors to grace. We're so indebted to grace we use grace as a means by which we give approval to our own sin. See, the church, we have compromised God's truths. And why are we in the position we are in so ineffective? Why are the walls broken down? Why are the gates not up? Why is there shame? Why is there great trouble? We have not lived. Individually, corporately, as we should have lived. We have sinned. But you see, he also understands that when one confesses one's sin, God is faithful and just to forgive. That's what the other part of Deuteronomy 30 is about. God will bring back. God will restore. He's looking at grace. He's looking at the cross. He's looking at Christ. See, a true confession of sin leads to the greatest blessing because when you truly confess the sin the weight the sin is removed because true confession of sin brings it to Christ and to Christ alone See, in spite of all the discouragement that this book begins with and all the concerns, oh, what God has in store for his people in this book. The third thing that we find here in this prayer is the request. Verse 6, Lord, just hear my prayer. We take it so for granted, don't we? Oh, sure, God's going to listen. Almost as if we deserve that. We deserve it. God ought to listen to me when I pray. After all, I'm Pastor Bob. God ought to listen to me when I pray. After all, people always come and say, Pastor Bob, would you pray for me? Must be something about me, right? Must be my prayers are better. So God better listen when I pray. Notice what Nehemiah teaches us. Lord, you hear me? It's just me. It's only by grace you're going to hear me. I know it's not because I deserve to be heard. Hear me. Second request, remember your promises. Remember that which you have promised. Remember that which you have said. Once again, taking us back to the word. Third request. Grant your servant success in front of this man. Now who's the man? That's the king. Grant me success. I don't know what's coming. I don't know where all this is leading. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what the future holds. But Lord... I'm the cupbearer to the king. I'm in the presence of the king. Grant me success. Time passes. Time passes. Because you see, that was in the month of Chisloff, the 20th year. Now we're in the month Nisan. Months have gone on. Suddenly the king says, You okay today, Nehemiah? You don't look real good. What's troubling you? What's the matter? Yeah, things back in Jerusalem are a mess. My heart, my heart is wounded. Well, what do you want? Then there's this line. Verse 4. So what's your request? Verse 4. So I prayed to the God of heaven. I don't know how much time he had, but I, get, I, I would imagine it wasn't much because I don't think he wants to impose upon the king. Boom! Prayer. I prayed. You know what I find interesting about Nehemiah's response is he doesn't hold back. <laughs> Boy, King, I, I'd just like it if maybe you'd you'd just give a special day, one day where we can just, as Jews, think about Jerusalem. Can we just do that? Yes, <laughs> for the whole thing. I want to go back. I want timber, I want safe passage, I want to rebuild Jerusalem. I want to do the right thing for the great name of our God. I don't know what he prayed. I don't know the words because the words are not recorded for us. It just says, and I prayed. And it was probably short, it was probably quick. I don't think it probably included the A, the C, the T, and the S. But he prayed. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. What a word of encouragement. Three things to take away one, the place. He's not in Jerusalem, he's not in the temple. He's not in the temple court. He's not at the temple wall. He's not at the city wall. He's not even in Judah. He is in a foreign country. He is in the opposition country. He is in the occupying capital of the foreign country. You don't have to be in church to pray. That may be news to some of you. You know, one of the things I think I learned from Nehemiah is is the thing that sometimes puts me to shame. Because there's some people, and you've probably met them, Something happens, you're just having a conversation, you don't even know the person, and the person says, well, let's have a word of prayer about that. Sometimes I'm like, word of prayer, here, now? This doesn't seem like the right circumstance. It doesn't seem like the right place. Here? The thing I learned from Nehemiah is even in the capital of Susa, you can pray. God is not bound by some territorial boundaries. And I don't just mean geographic, I mean the mental boundaries that we put. Sometimes we think that that we're in situations that are beyond the point of prayer. That we're involved perhaps in a sin that is beyond the reaches of prayer. That that we, we can't pray and confess that sin because we're too far gone and God there cannot answer prayer. Sometimes it's because the situation has gotten so complex and there's so many little. Co- it's like we're in the middle of a, co- a cobweb. We're, we're in the middle of this spider web and we're this fly that's caught. And well, no matter what we do, it seems like we're getting more and more tangled. And, and we're like, pray here? Yeah, in the capital of Susa, you can pray. There is no place. Outside of hell itself, where you cannot pray. You can pray at the morgue. You can pray at the hospital. You can pray at the dumpster. You can pray when the sewer guy is draining your sewer. You can pray when you're nailing on a roof. You can pray when you're mixing cake batter. There's no place outside of prayer. But there's, there's also the person. Remember what I told you about Nehemiah? He's not a prophet. He's not a priest. He's a civil servant. I mean, you don't have to have a theological degree or something like that. You don't have to have a fancy title. No. And I know what people mean when they say, Pastor Bob, would you pray for me? I, I understand that. But, you know, I just, I just caution you. Please don't think that means you can't pray yourself. Sometimes I think we still got somewhat of that Catholic notion where we have to go to the Father and we have to confess to the Father, you know, the the priest. And and only he is the one, because he's a little bit closer to God. Folks, I stand up here, but that doesn't make me closer to God. Because God's presence is not an elevation thing. God's presence is not a title thing. God's people can pray. Nehemiah teaches me that. It reminds me of that. He's not schooled. He hasn't gone to rabbinical school so he knows all the right theological terms and how to state it and say it. He's just a civil servant. He's a cupbearer to the king. And he prays. God hears. The third thing that we'll come to as we go through this series, is his perseverance. The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Paul, Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. See, that's Nehemiah. He's always ready to pray. He's always ready. When the circumstance is there, he prays, he prays, he prays. Oh, Lord, teach us how to pray. Father, thank you for your word. This beautiful, beautiful passage of truth, of historical reality that reminds us of this Old Testament saint lifting up prayers before you in the midst of the crisis of the church. Father, we would pray that you might hear your saints today as we pray for the church in our world That, Father, as we see in miraculous ways these walls being rebuilt in the course of 52 days, oh, Father, we would pray that you would restore your church. Not for our name's sake, but for your name's sake. In Christ, our Lord, we pray. And God's people say, amen.